So we are picking up here on this material on the uh, the uh, lead elder, the lead officer of any given church, and that is the pastor, elder, or bishop. We spent a bit of time last time talking about uh, uh, the qualifications and the choice of of these uh, of these uh, uh, these pastors. Uh, most of them are given here in terms of character qualifications, although there is an expectation that the uh, pastor not only know the word well, but also be able to teach it well and also to defend it uh, in apologetical context. And that ended up being our only skill set uh, that appears on the list. Um, and oftentimes I think sometimes that we uh, we look at the wrong, in the wrong places for quali- qualified leaders. I say this because uh, there is at least a chance that some of you will be involved at some point in your in your lives in the church, uh, you know, selecting a, a new lead pastor. Make sure that you're you're doing this in a way that is that is in keeping with what the scriptures expect, not spend too much time uh, thinking about peripheral issues, um, some of the some of the uh, some of the candy that might uh, come along with the uh, uh, with uh, certain certain you know applicants, uh, make sure that you have the fundamentals correct uh, in the in the choice of a pastor. We're going to move here tonight here to letter B on page sixty one. Uh, the functions of a pastor, elder, and bishop. And really, what I just want to do is take those three words and unpack them a bit: elder, pastor, and bishop. Start with elder, um, and of course, it, it means what it sounds like. They should be older. Probably not so much in terms of years, although that's probably probably part of it. Uh, but really, it's a, it's a it's a point. It's pointing to spiritual maturity. Uh, again, we saw earlier that they were not to be a novice, not to be a young con, a new convert, and so there should be a level of spiritual maturity that marks an individual. So he's to be a mature, respectable leader within the church. And uh, their function will involve that of presiding or ruling. Seems to be then associated with this this elder idea, uh, like their Old Testament Jewish namesakes who were elected and appointed to administer the affairs of the city or the nation and to instruct and counsel and judge the citizenry. Remember when when Moses. Uh, was uh, overwhelmed by the uh, responsibilities that he had as the leader of the people. He petitioned God for some help, and God says, yes, it's not good that you should lead these people alone. And he offered then uh, 70 elders to share the load. So that you, we get a sense here. I think, you know, obviously, the Israel's not the church. At the same time, this idea of elders probably does have some sort of connection here in terms of at least the definition of what's going on here. They're, they're helping to rule the church, uh, just as those elders helped Moses to rule the people uh, back in two million people. The, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament. So these New Testament uh, elders lead local churches, administrate them, and teach them. Uh, and so we find here that elders are specifically charged with ruling well, and uh, to work hard in preaching and teaching. Of course, First uh, Timothy five seventeen has been something of a of a of a lightning rod, as far as the uh, as far as what it says. It says elders who rule well are 
worthy of a double honor. And some have taken, particularly in the Presbyterian uh, denomination, uh, a suggestion here that there are elders who teach and elders who rule, and they are and they're actually two separate classes distinguished here in this verse. And that seems to be unlikely. Uh, the contrast being made here is not between elders who rule and elders who teach, but between elders who rule well and work hard at teaching and those who don't do so well, you know, um, and or, or perhaps put in more time. Uh, there's no syntactical basis here for arguing for two kinds of elders. Uh, significantly, uh, this, the term here that uh, connects the two halves of the verse can't be construed in any other way. Okay. It really should be understood, uh, uh, it should be translated here as especially. So elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at what they do and perhaps work long at what they do in preaching and teaching. Of course, we we recognize that some pastors are not full-time pastors. Some pastors are part-time pastors. And we recognize that there is uh, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And if he does more work and better work, uh, then he is worthy of uh, a double honor is what is being said here. So it's not a statement here that some some elders teach and some of them don't, uh, but rather that some teach particularly well, and they should be recognized for what they do. Okay, so they're the self-same person, the self-same person who teaches and rules. Elsewhere, we find, uh, we saw that last week, that all teachers are to be apt to teach or able to teach and able to manage the household of God. So uh, that's that's incumbent upon all elders, that they're able to teach and able to manage the house of God. Okay. Elders are called to shepherd the flock. Uh, so there's no distinction noted between ruling and teaching elders, although functionally this may sometimes happen. I mean, I think, I think it does sort of happen in your church. You've got uh, uh, one pastor that does more preaching uh, than the others. You've got others who are more involved in administrative responsibilities, and, and the, the scripture certainly wouldn't forbid that. But it does suggest that all elders should be able to do both, okay? All the elders should be able to do both. In fact, I remember a few years, a few years ago, I was, uh, I was asked to, uh, you know, step into, uh, uh, to pastor, uh, to, to, uh, to preach at a church. Uh, I forget the circumstances, but the pastor was going to be out for a couple of weeks and they needed somebody. This is not unusual. And so I, so I go in there and, uh, they had, they had, they had four elders in the church. And, uh, I, I really, as a matter of curiosity, I said, so do the rest of you get opportunities to preach? Do you, uh, so why didn't, why didn't one of you fill the pulpit today? I, I wasn't really trying to probe for information, <laughs> but, uh, I expected them to say, you know, well, we work other jobs. We just didn't have the time or the, you know, but the, the fellow looked at me square in the eye and said, well, we're not able to teach. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute. I thought all elders were to be able to teach. Uh, so uh, there, there was a little bit of a problem there in the structuring of that church. Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the tensions that are, that, that raises here in terms of the number 
of elders in the church. But uh, more on that in a little little bit. But for now, all we can say here is that all elders are to be able to teach and able to manage the household. And so these are requirements, expectations that are incumbent upon every elder, not just specific classes of elders. There's only one kind of elder. Okay. Any questions on that? You're using elder synonymous with pastor, correct? Yes. In fact, uh, yeah, I think we looked at that last time that uh, in in 1 Peter 5, uh, verse Verses one and two, all three of those terms are used in, in parallel with one another. Elder, pastor, and, uh, and, uh, elder, pastor, and overseer or bishop. And they're used synonymously. So there's really no reason to think that there's a distinction between them. Okay. There's a previous church. Uh, I think we used elder, but it was synonymous with deacon. Yeah. It, it, in, in many, Many Presbyterian or, or elder-led uh, kinds of situations, you have a group of elders and then the pastor. Um, and, I, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's a wrong thing to do. Uh, so long as all of the elders are able to teach and the pastor is able to administrate, it's not a problem, I suppose, to give them separate names. But I think perhaps it's un- un- ill-advised. Uh, because it, it sort of suggests a dichotomy. One, one class of elders is better or different than the other and probably shouldn't be thinking in those terms. There's really only one officer, uh, implied by all of those terms. So the next term then is overseer or, uh, or as it shows up as, uh, bishop. And then we'll also throw in the word pastor or shepherd. These are designed to oversee souls. Okay. So they're, they're soul watchers. They watch for your souls. So they superintend the spiritual work of God. I say this differs only subtly from ruling, uh, but perhaps the ruling uh, carries a little bit more of an administrative weight, whereas pastoring and overseeing is perhaps more the watch care of souls. Uh, but there's, there is overlap. On this, so so uh, the idea here is a personal, hands-on approach in equipping people for the work of the ministry and caring for the souls of one's flock, and which is a concept that exceeds the aloof decisions and judgments that perhaps might be communicated by the word "rule." Okay, somebody who rules you seems to rule from a distance, but this this is that they're. They're with you. They're, they're in your midst. They're mingling with you, watching for your souls. And so this idea of oversight and shepherding usually appear together in the New Testament. Here's some of these texts, uh, like I said, Dave, Dave, where they're, where these used are used synonymously. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for your flock, which the Lord, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. So overseers, shepherd. So overseer is the term bishop. Shepherd is the term pastor. So as bishops, you are to pastor uh, the church of God. Interesting that that word pastor, how that comes into English 
uh, just so you recognize that um, the word is actually an old English word uh, that used to be pasturer that was shortened to pastor. So a pasturer is someone who takes the sheep to the pasture. So he's a pasturer. So he's, he's, he's there to feed, feed the sheep. So, so a pastor is a shepherd. So that's, that's why those two terms are often used synonymously because they are the same word in, in English. Okay. First Peter 2.25, for you were co- continually straying like sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and overseer, bishop of your souls. First Peter 5, same book. This is a command here given to elders. Be shepherds, be pastors of God's flock that is under your care, serving as bishops or overseers. Uh, Hebrews 13, obey them that rule over you and submit because they watch for your souls as those who give an account. Now, in this case, the the two terms aren't used, but the two ideas are there, right? They rule and they watch for your souls. And so these two ideas are together. I also include here the idea of preacher. Uh, In fact, uh, uh, particularly in the African-American community, uh, the lead officer of the church is often called the preacher. Uh, and that's not, that's not without biblical precedent because that does seem to be one of the primary functions of a pastor is he's to be preaching. And so this is a primary function. He has to be able to do this in order uh, to fill the office. So until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, to teaching, preach the word, be Instant, in season, out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction. So these are the functions, the primary functions of a pastor to rule, uh, to effort, and to preach. And again, these, it's perhaps you say, well, those, those sort of overlap. Yeah, they do. Uh, but those are the primary functions of a pastor. Any questions on that, the, the, the primary responsibilities here? Yes. Um, when you're talking about uh, they've got to be able to teach, uh-huh. I'm assuming that they have got to be able to teach adults rather than children. I mean, if their only uh, experience has been with the children's church, are they still in the running? Well, I, yeah, it does seem like there is no, there doesn't seem to be a distinction here made. Um, it's, you need to be able to teach Christians and, you know, and bring, bring them to places of maturity. Yeah. Is it, is it appropriate to have a youth pastor? I, I don't think that's, there's a problem with that. Uh, but, uh, probably if, if, if that's all you can do, that's going to be really limiting. In terms of your functionality as a pastor, uh, it seems seems like the maturity, the the elder idea, is there so that you can teach mature people, and bring in, bring and bring others to a place of maturity. And then also, what about people that kind of get coerced into being an elder? You know, like we can't find anybody else, and so they're putting pressure on somebody that. Yeah. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that in a, in a minute here. Cause we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the number of pastors in a church 
And, uh, and that's one of the tensions that rises with the multiple elder model, that, you, that every church has to have multiple elders. You often end up with situations where there, there, there aren't enough or aren't those that are willing. And so what tends to happen in those situations is you settle for someone who isn't biblically qualified. I, I suspect that's what happened at that church that I was just speaking of. They, their, their constitution requires four elders, but there weren't four people who are biblically qualified to be elders. So somebody was pressed into service. And, and, and sometimes that's a, that's a tension that rises uh, quite, quite commonly in multiple, in a multiple elder setting. Um, quite frankly, if you, if you look at the history of, of the Baptist church and particularly at, at certain times in history, uh, the problem was not, you know, that they had too many, but they had too few. And we, we have, we have multiple situations where single pastors were circuit riding pastors, right? You, you, you've heard that term. They would have, they would have four churches or six and they would, they would ride between them, uh, Sunday by Sunday, uh, in order to, for one elder to be at six churches. And so, there's been within the history of the church a problem with trying to populate multiple a, a multiple elder situation, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Thank you. Okay, the source and extent of pastoral authority, and I want again we uh, we've talked we talked about this from the congregational side i want to sort of say some things about this from the pastor side remember we we said that congregationalism and uh, there's a congregational rule but elder led and sometimes there's a tension there right we and we have to get that tension uh in in as much harmony as possible because the final say in the rule of the church falls to the uh to the church, you know, the, the congregation in its totality. At the same time, uh, we, we just saw, uh, there's, there is a charge given to pastors to lead. And, uh, and I think sometimes you end up with churches that don't let their pastors lead. And alternatively, we have situations where the, the pastor leads with too heavy of a hand. And so we want to talk a little bit about that intersection of power. Uh, within the life of the church. I say here, by virtue of the indiscriminate commands we sometimes see in the scriptures for the pastor to rule and to oversee, it's clear that the Bible sees authority as inherent within the pastoral office. You can't hire a pastor and tell him, but you can't rule. <laughs> That's the, the, the office has that, that authority attached to it. So the congregation does not technically invest pastoral authority in a man. It elects a man to a position that has inherent authority. A church cannot grant someone the pastoral office while withholding the authority because the authority belongs to the office, not to the congregation. Okay, So specifically, the pastors have broad authority to preach on the topics they deem necessary for the life of the health, white life and health of the church, to exhort, to confront, to counsel persons in the flock without seeking permission to do so. They lead in worship and evangelism, 
placing emphasis as they see fit to correct deficiencies and to promote appropriate congregational participation. That's the function of a, of a pastor. He's there to facilitate the work of the ministry. Now, it doesn't mean there can't be any mutual advisement, but it does mean that pastors have considerable liberty to rule, to oversee, to shepherd, and to preach as they see fit. Okay. Now, the congregation does have the authority, if they discover their pastor is abusing his authority, to take that person away from the office. But once they put them into that office, they are giving that person the uh, authority and liberty to rule the church. Okay, so 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 hopefully that, that makes some sense. Um, of course, we say here that Scripture does recognize two kinds of local authority, pastoral authority, congregational authority, and these two authorities exist in tension, but never to the exclusion of the other. Okay. Churches can, and and I, I don't know that we can look at the scripture and find specific lines of demarcation between the two. You know, some churches do make more congregational decisions. Some do give uh, vest their their leaders with greater authority. It's it's often a trust uh, kind of an issue here, and so the the Bible doesn't specify. You know, you can you know you can let your pastor spend up to a hundred bucks without you know inquiring of the uh, of the congregation. And it doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that. It couldn't, of course. Uh, but uh, but uh, um, but there are lines of demarcation there. Okay, uh, there are some things that the congregation must hold. A congregation cannot give up congregationalism. It cannot give up its right to appoint officers. It cannot give its right to adjudicate in membership issues. We saw specifically the congregation is always involved in receiving one another. And when they are together, excluding those who need to be excluded, exercising church discipline. So membership matters. And and uh, and uh, and officers are the purview of the whole church. Uh, so those those are things that they can never just give up to the elder and say, "You take care of it." Uh, it's not something that a congregation can give up, or else it ceases to be congregational. Um, and of course, there's uh, there are there are things that the pastor gets to do as well. So the pastor rules the congregation at the good pleasure of the congregation. Okay, so. Uh, that's 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 how the tension lies. In most cases, when you hear that phrase "elder rule," uh, we're talking about a situation where the elders are probably taking away some of the congregational prerogatives that the scriptures uh, give to them. Um, usually, I try to use the term "elder-led congregationalism" uh, to sort of clarify that that tension here. Usually when you hear the words elder rule, uh, that, that tends to be a little bit more, uh, top heavy of a kind of, of an arrangement there. Okay. Any questions on that? Another question here. Does, uh, you know, the fact that the pastor gets to rule is he, does he have the authority to suggest or command a course of action in some sort of non-biblical area? Uh, so, you know, we, we recognize he has an extraordinary authority 
to take the scriptures and repackage the commands there and exhort his people and rebuke his people. Those are his responsibilities. Uh, but can a pastor exceed what the scriptures say in, uh, in commanding his people what to do? Well, I say here that pastoral authority operates in the realm of spiritual oversight. Now, I, there, there are spheres of authority, and uh, God has, has appointed uh, leaders in each of those spheres. You know, God puts men in charge of their families. God puts pastors in charge of churches. God puts presidents in charge of countries, okay? And they each have a God-given right and responsibility to rule within those spheres, but really not without them. Same time, I, I, I don't want to uh, tie the hands of your pastor unduly here, because secular and spiritual matters often do overlap, right? Let's see if I can give an example here. So if a pastor really has no right to order individuals in his congregation to buy a Chevy rather than a Ford or, or a Toyota. Now, some of you may disagree with that, but <laughs> don't know where you work. But uh, at the same time, a pastor could rightly advise a man not to purchase an extravagant car that would strap him financially and so injure his family or hamper his participation in the life of the church. Because in this case, that has sort of drifted into a matter of spiritual oversight. And so the secular issue has spiritual implications or ramifications. It affects a member's stewardship and his spiritual commitments. And so it is probably appropriate then for the pastor uh, to counsel in such a situation. But then I, in my next paragraph, I, I, I caution again that just because he can counsel or advise in a certain area does not mean necessarily that he can command. And a pastor needs to know uh, the difference between the two person should never fall under church discipline for disobeying his pastor unless he's disobeying the Bible, too. At the same time, it's incumbent upon the congregation to develop a level of trust in their spiritual leader and act on his advice as often as is possible. And, uh, you know, I, I think you have a good situation at your church. I, I, I've been in, you know, I preach all over, all over with, uh, you know, when you know, people go on vacations and such, and some churches are quite healthy and, and others aren't, you know, and there's a, there's a, a high level of distrust, uh, between congregations and their leaders. And that's, that's always a very sad thing to see. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm, you should, you should be very grateful for the fact that you don't really have that kind of a situation in, in your church. And, you know, obviously there's, it's always going to be conflicts here and there, but at the same time, uh, I think you've got a, a good, healthy church, and you should be very grateful for that and, and pray for that to continue. Okay. Next question here is how many pastors should a church have? And this is where I'm going to accelerate a little bit, but uh, it's still a question that's asked uh, quite a bit. So there are basically, well, there's basically two positions, but we could probably subdivide them further. One is that there's a single elder, or as I've said here, a lead elder with a hierarchy of lesser elders underneath him. So there's a, a lead elder or a senior pastor and his assistants. Uh, 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to deal with both of them together. And then I'm going to look at the idea of plurality or multiple elders, uh, each with more or less equal authority. And so we're going to weigh the, weigh the advantages, disadvantages and the biblical material to see, uh, where, where, uh, where we should tilt, uh, when it comes to this question. So let's make the argument first for a single pastor or a senior pastor with assistant pastors. Okay. I say here, uh, the pattern of leadership in scripture often include multiple leaders, but it usually, usually had a first among equals, primus inter paris, the, the a first among equals, uh, a, a, a singular head leader. Okay. So for instance, Old Testament Israel had 70 elders, but nobody had any question that Moses was in charge, right? Later, Israel had many governors, but there was one king. Similarly, in the first century synagogue, there were many officers and workers within the synagogue, but the synagogues were all organized with a president. Even the early church had 12 apostles. Quite a bit of authority up front. He seems to be the one who's been given oversight among the disciples. The church in Jerusalem had multiple elders, but James shows up on multiple occasions as being the elder. We know there's more than one, but for some reason he is called the elder, uh, suggesting that he is the greatest, the, the, the top dog, senior pastor, the lead, the presiding elder, whatever you want to say, he seems to be uh, the one in charge of the Jerusalem congregation. And we also find that other social institutions, such as the family, even the Trinity itself, have a hierarchical structure, uh, a top-down structure with a single head at the top of the arrangement. Okay, so that's uh, I think uh, an argument here for single eldership. I say, while plurality of eldership, a uh, second argument here, is clearly common in the New Testament, this does not necessarily upset the single elder idea. Uh, um, the few occasions where single elders are maintained do throw uh, the plural elder model into question. Okay, So we find uh, several situations where there's multiple elders, but it's the ones where we find just one that sort of jump off the page. So, for instance, uh, the uh, first verse of, of 2 John and 3 John, John describes himself as the elder, which suggests he's not just merely one of many, but is unique in some sense. He is the elder, not just an elder, one of many, but the elder. Revelation 1 to 3, each of the seven churches is represented by a single messenger. Now, many of your translations have a read uh, to, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia or Laodicea or whatever it is. Uh, so there are seven of them, right? Um, and so it uses this word angel or messenger, uh, which perhaps could suggest that John's not speaking of pastors at all. But there's good reason to think that he may be speaking of pastors. One, this term messenger or angel, as it shows up here, can be used of human messengers. Uh, now, oftentimes when you see that word in the Bible, angel, you think, okay, 
one of those spirit beings that, that uh, flies about and appears supernaturally doing the will of God uh, that's not human. Uh, but that's not the only use of this term angel. Sometimes it can simply be a messenger, a general messenger uh, who brings, uh, it could be a human messenger uh, who brings a message from one to another. So it can be human. The warnings and encouragements, secondly, in these letters don't seem appropriate to angels. Uh, the, the instructions here are, you know, direct the church, relieve the church away from the problems they have and, and encourage them in what they do well. So it seems odd to tell an angel this uh, because angels really don't run churches. Okay, so it, it does point perhaps to the idea that these are pastors. And then thirdly here, the idea of, for lack of a better word, ecclesiastical guardian angels is not found anywhere else in the scripture. That every church, you know, has some sort of a, a secret invisible angel sort of hovering over top of them. Possible? Sure. Uh, is there any sort of biblical reason to think that this is the case? Well, beyond these verses, no. And so there's there's at least a good chance here. Uh, that these angels in Revelation 1 to 3 are, in fact, the pastors of these respective seven uh, churches, okay? And they do seem, then, all to have a single or or a primary elder or pastor. Another argument, sometimes used, I think it's a weaker one, but uh, one that perhaps uh, you've heard in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone desires the office of elder, he desires a good work. An elder must be. So, so the, uh, or an overseer must be. And it's in the singular. But then when you get down to verse seven and eight and start talking about deacons, it's, it's in the plural, uh, which perhaps could suggest that a, a pattern in the early church was one pastor, multiple deacons. Again, I, I don't think that that's a de- determinative one, but perhaps contributes to a larger argument. Here's one. In fact, this is what uh, we were talking about, Sharon, earlier. In view of the fact that 1 Corinthians 9.14, God commands that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. This seems to imply here that uh, in order for, uh, for someone to function as a pastor, the church needs to be able to pay them. Okay, And this becomes quite difficult for particularly small churches, to be able to pay multiple elders. This is difficult. Um, and so what ends up happening, right, is that you know, they have multiple elders and say, uh, but we can't pay you anything, okay? And that seems to be really in violation of this command, right? The Lord has commanded that those who are functioning as elders should get their living from this. And... Uh, Practically speaking, many churches, probably most churches, can't afford to pay more than one elder. Okay. Now, the fact is, a pastor can voluntarily do this. You know, a pastor can. And Paul was our example, right? He he goes and makes tents in order to uh, uh, to uh, to to fund his life, and so he doesn't have to, you know, request money from the churches. But he but he actually points out that that's not the norm. He's doing this voluntarily, but in fact, the church ought to pay their pastors ordinarily. 
even though a pastor may, for a time, volunteer his services uh, without receiving pay. Uh, letter E here, again, it's often impossible for many churches to discover in their memberships more than one gifted or qualified elder. In fact, oftentimes, you you come to, uh, you know, your, your pastor leaves, retires, moves on. What happened? Well, there's nobody there. There's There's nobody in the church who's qualified to be an elder. And so you actually have to start looking outside of the church for someone to take that role. And so, so the idea then that every church is going to have multiple men would have, who have the qualifications of an elder in their midst is actually something of a tall order. And so again, Sharon, this is, this is where it, where it comes up. So because they, they can't find anybody in their membership that is qualified to be an elder, what do they do? They appoint someone who isn't qualified. And that's a problem. And so an argument then uh, for at least the viability or possibility that a church could have just one elder. And then practically speaking, last point, there's always leaders among leaders uh, such that nearly all elder-led congregational churches have one presiding man. Okay, Uh, this is just the way people work, right? It's very unusual to have a situation where, you know, there's three elders, five elders, and each of them has absolutely the same authority and level of deference as the others. Usually somebody is gifted with greater leadership skills and ends up being a presiding elder. And so this has been used as an argument by many to say that, yeah, you can have multiple elders, but one has to be in charge. Okay, something of a practical argument. Uh, it's not like it has some sort of biblical, uh, biblical foundation to it, but it, it practically speaking, uh, that seems to be how people operate. Okay. So this, that's the argument then, uh, for single elders. Okay. Any thoughts on that so far? Uh, yeah. I, um, these, these things here, C, D, E, and F, I, uh, seem to be real practical. Yes. Uh, the problem I have with those is that uh, Titus 1.5 and uh, and also uh, passages in the book of Acts always deal with plurality of elders. They've yeah. appointed elders in every town. Uh, yeah. And then, and then uh, again, Titus was to appoint elders in every town. Yeah. And, you know, you have, yeah, you have problems with pay and maybe they had to, maybe they had to make tents on the side. Uh, but the thing is, 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 uh, it, the New Testament, you know, uh, it's always elders, plural. It's always that. And it's not always, but most of the time. Yes. Well, I can, okay. I, I have never seen, I have never seen in the New Testament from Acts 1 1, to Jude, end of the book of Jude, any instance where there was uh, one, where there was explicitly one elder. Right. Well, I, I tried to point out some of those, you know, the seven, the seven elders or the angels in Revelation. I recognize that that's, that's not clear cut. It's not clear cut. James seems to have some sort of priority in the early church in Jerusalem. He's, He's he's the leader of the Jerusalem Council. Well, I'm not, um, and again, um, I'm not I'm not 
debating that. There, there is that Latin term there, primus inter pares. Yeah, the first among many, or the the first among equals. But, but I and I understand that. But, but uh, also there, there's plurality of elders, and that just yeah, yeah, and and and, and honestly, yeah, and 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 by the way, I. I prefer a plurality of elders myself. So, so that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the case for both sides as fairly as possible. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, so recognize that I'm, I'm, I'm about to hit the next, you can see the next section here is the answers to these arguments and you've hit on, hit on several of them already. Then I'm oh, going to okay. make the case for plural. So, 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 so recognize that I'm trying to do both and give, give the, give the argument from both sides, the answers from the other side. And allow you to work through the through the material too. Oh, okay. So just just so you recognize how I'm how I'm structuring this thing. I'm sorry, I didn't look down there. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But I guess I would make the point. There are some churches, um, like one small church in the UP that I know of. At one time, they had a missionary who was a the pastor. They they couldn't support the pastor, let alone more than one. They were small. Uh, very poor area and to to not have a church because they don't have a plurality of leaders, I think would be an issue as well. Right. But, yeah. So, so let's look at here what the, what the plural, those who hold to a plural eldership, which apparently Wes is one of these. <laughs> um, and uh, what, what are their responses to these arguments? And uh, you've hit on several of these. One, the passages that purportedly detail a single elder scenario are debated, as you've said there. The singular bishop in 1 Timothy 3.1 is inconclusive. If you want to be a pastor, a pastor has to be this way. Uh, it doesn't actually say that it's a single pastor in the church. It's just singular there. Uh, you could have done the same thing with deacon. The normal translation for angel. In Roman, Revelation 1 to 3. Normally, more, more often than not, when you see that word angelos, it's an angel. Sometimes it's a human messenger, but most of the time it's an angel. Thirdly here, the use of the article with elder in 2 John and 3 John 1, John the elder, could possibly point to John as a senior or sole elder of the assembly, but it could simply be a reference to prior acquaintance. Hi, I'm John, I, the elder at, at the church, you know. So he's not necessarily saying, I am the one and only elder. But, hey, you know, sometimes you say that, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm Mark. Yeah, the guy lives up the street. Well, I'm not saying I'm the only one, the one and only guy that lives up the street. But one, you've have you you've met me earlier a couple of years ago. You may not remember. I'm the guy that lives up the street, and so this could be all that John is saying. I'm I'm the elder John. There's lots of Johns in the early in the in the first century. I'm I'm the elder John. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily say he's the one and only elder. I say in the balance of references to elders and bishops in the New Testament, the terms invariably appear in the plural. So there's only a few occasions where they appear in the singular. Most of the time, as Wes has pointed out, most of the time they appear in the plural. Again, this doesn't necessarily amount to, to a prescription, but it is the pattern. 
It's, it's a consistent pattern. Third bullet point here. While plurality and equality are at times inefficient, you say, well, you know, if you've got, you've got, you've got three heads, you know, nothing's ever going to get done. Sometimes that's by design, right? You know, you, you read the Federalist Papers, right? The reason they put 400, well, that wasn't 435 at the time, but they have a bunch of people in the uh, legislature and it's difficult to pass laws. Why is that? Because they wanted it to be difficult. Because <laughs> they didn't want a situation where you could just ramrod through legislation. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be difficult to design that way. And perhaps that's exactly what God was intending uh, when, when he designed the church to have multiple elders. So you have multiple heads coming together uh, to, to talk about issues, uh, recognizing that there's strength, there's value in numbers. Okay. So plurality ensures that more options and objections are considered, prevents the corruption that tends to accompany centralized authority that is embodied in the single elder model. Another pushback. Practically, most single elder-led congregations are committed to plural eldership. Uh, in fact, most, you know, most of the, you know, I've been in a lot of uh, fundamentalist churches that have a single elder, but what do they usually have as well? A deacon board. Okay. And, and why do they have that? Well, because the congregation said it is not good for that pastor to lead alone. Let us give to them some deacons. Probably not the best scenario. I mean, it, it seems to take deacons and elevate them to the level of elders. Um, and uh, pro- probably not the, the best arrangement to have a board of elders. There's really no biblical precedent for it. But why does that happen? Because we all recognize that when you have a singular a, a leader who does not have any accountability, things tend to go wrong. And so most churches that have a single pastor recognize there has to be a multiplicity of, of leadership. Another point, practically, a plurality of elders all but guarantees that a church is never left completely bereft of pastoral leadership, even during, and especially during, a period of transition. Now, I, I've mentioned this before. I've 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 had multiple occasions to uh, serve as an interim pastor at churches that just lost their pastor. Well, sometimes it's a retirement, sometimes it's you know some sort of a bad situation. Somebody moved on or some, something. And and what ends up happening is they've got no leadership because they had one pastor, and when he was gone, they were without a leader at. In it, right when they need to make the most important decision of any church's life, you know, who's going to be our next leader? And they, and they make that decision without any leadership. Um, and the, the plurality of eldership, uh, makes it such that no pat, no church is ever completely without any leaders. One moves on. That's fine. There's others to fill in the gap until that person's void has been filled. Okay. So I, I think that's, it's one of the tensions that we've had in our, in our, in our, in, in the independent church movement is that, uh, transitions have been rather frightful, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the one leader has moved on, leaving a church without a leader. Oftentimes there's attrition 
so, so a church is without a pastor for a year or two years and people start cascading away. And so the church really is hurting. And, uh, we, we've, we've tended over the years, I think, to do rather poorly in our transitions. I was, I'm very excited. I, I'm overseeing a, a THM thesis right now. So that's uh, getting handed in next month uh, by one of our THM grads who's outlining a, a model and a plan for pastoral transitions in independent churches. And I think he's done a pretty good job. It's a gap. It's a gap in the, in the, uh, in our, in our, in our model. Last uh, objection here, the objection of unpaid elders, I think is a serious one that we have to grapple with, but it's in part answered by the fact that the problem is not unique to plural led congregations, as Dave just pointed out. Sometimes you have churches that can't afford one, right? Uh, I, I saw that particularly when I was in Tanzania, you know, in Africa. They, they can't afford one. Places like you say here in remote areas, rural areas, there's just not enough Christians. Uh, even if, even, <laughs> even if they were wealthy, you know, they, they're just not enough of them, uh, to people a church and to pay a, a living salary uh, to their pastor. So what do we do in that case? Well, um, there there is the option then of tent-making pastors. Pa- Paul did this, and it seems like it's an appropriate thing to do. It should be voluntary, though. Um, I've, I'm particularly troubled by a uh, you know, you know, you, you know, Mark Dever, I generally have very high regard for his, his polity materials. But one, one thing I do take umbrage with him, uh, in his, in his church's, uh, bylaws, they have, they require a certain number of elders, some of which must be paid and some of which must not be paid, which seems a little bit difficult to, uh, to square with these passages that those who, preach the gospel, should get their living from the gospel, uh, to make it mandatory that they not receive pay, seems to violate those verses. Now, if someone wants to volunteer their services as an elder, that's fine. But the, pat, the, but the church should at least want to and attempt to uh, pay those elders as much as possible. And so this happens in churches that are single elder-led and plural elder-led. And perhaps we should think in terms of well, the church can't afford it, or there aren't anybody, there's nobody here, and say, rather than, okay, well, then we'll just go with one, to say, okay, maybe we need to mentor new young men, or make it a priority to be able to have more than one leader within the life of the church. So I think that can sometimes be a solution as well, that sometimes we we, we push off the table. We, we, we need to be cultivating, uh, mentoring young men, toward the ministry and your pastor is doing that. And I, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with that because I, I think every church has a responsibility uh, to be replacing its own elders. And then, you know, as, as the Lord blesses, you know, maybe even producing some elders beyond their needs uh, so that some of these smaller churches uh, can, can, can benefit uh, from, uh, from the work that's being done here. Okay. So that's the argument for and against single Elders. Uh, the, the next, the next section here is the argument for plural eldership and against it. Now, 
many of these are simply crisscrossing back and forth. So we, that, this will, I think will go quicker. Uh, but let's, let's put it out there. A, the testimony of scripture to plural eldership is universal or almost so. We cannot definitely identify one New Testament church that was governed by a single elder. Some that may have been, but none that we can say with absolute certainty were. But we can identify at least 10 churches or groups of churches that had plural eldership. The Jerusalem church had multiple elders. The Syrian church, the Assyrian Antioch, multiple elders. Ephesus, multiple elders, and so on down the line. All of these passages here uh, talk about churches that had multiple elders. This is the pattern that we find in scripture normally. We'll come back to the one in Titus, uh, uh, West, because I'm, I'm not sure it's quite as strong of a, of a passage as, as, as some have suggested, but we'll come back to that. The structure of the church, letter B, suggests a need for multiplied elders. Jerusalem church, of course, was very large, thousands of members, which meant presumably in dozens of homes, probably each one led by an elder. Still, this complex of meetings was described as the church at Jerusalem. Letter C, the scriptures know of no distinctions between elders, and to distinguish one man as the lead elder or the super elder or the senior pastor, whatever the case may be, has no more warrant than does the Episcopal model. Okay, and so, uh, while this is, this is, this is true, um, uh, we don't actually have any biblical warrant. We don't, we can't point to any church and say, there's a church that has a senior pastor and multiple assistant pastors. Doesn't mean that it couldn't have been that way, but there doesn't seem to be any biblical, strong biblical, uh, reason to think that that's the way it was. Now, it doesn't mean that one pastor or another can't influence a, a group of elders more than another. I mean, that's, I, I, I like, like, like was said earlier, it is true that within groups of elders, usually one ends up presiding, but presiding is not the same as saying he has more authority. Okay. So the plural elders, you know, most, you know, Presbyterian sessions, for instance, they appoint a presiding elder, someone to lead the meetings. But when it comes down to a vote, each one has a single vote. It's not as though the presiding elder has has some sort of superpower uh, that the other elders don't. So, uh, yes, there is a presiding elder, but that's not the same as saying that one has more authority than the other. Letter D, another argument, plural elders. Eldership recognizes that no man is an expert at every aspect of pastoral leadership and allows the strength of a team in governing the church. Again, it is true that every pastor needs to be able to teach and it needs to be able to administrate. But the fact is, some are better at teaching and some are better at administering. And that's fine. Uh, and so that, uh, that's, it, it's, it's appropriate that a church would break down their responsibilities in those lines. Above all, plural eldership effectively disperses authority among several el- leaders and diffuses the tendency in single eldership to autocracy or dictatorship. Okay, so those are the arguments that are often raised for plural eldership. How do the single eldership advocates reply? Well, three, four points here, right? Plural-led congregationalism 
represents an unnatural psychology of polity. That's what Patterson says in his defense of single eldership. The elder, the idea of a leaderless ruling board is unknown among all human organizations, he says. Every board in the business world has a CEO. Every attempt at an idealized round table in history has inevitably yielded to a King Arthur. Okay. So that's, uh, that's the argument that's made. And there's probably some truth to it, but it's just a pragmatic or practical argument. There really is no biblical basis uh, for uh, the argument. Practically speaking, though, perhaps a point can be made here. Second bullet point, plural-led congregations by advocating lay elders or non-vocational elders or unpaid elders uniformly violate the Lord's command that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And I think this is a fairly strong argument. Okay, Those who rule well are worthy of a double honor. And ironically, contrary to this latter text, it is the elders who merely rule that are usually the ones that don't get paid, right? The pastor, the, the teacher gets paid, uh, but the rulers, the administrators, are the first usually uh, to be denied a paycheck, okay? Now, again, there's, there's always a possibility that you could have partially paid elders, part-time elders, or you could have those who volunteer their services and say, you don't need to pay me, uh, but again, the pattern of scripture seems to be that a church should be paying its elders, all things being equal. And that's just very difficult to do in a uh, single elder model. Next bullet point, plural led congregations are routinely obliged to opt not only for an unpaid eldership, but also unqualified eldership to meet predetermined quotas of elders. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is an interesting thing that uh, uh, in in elder le- multiple elder situations, oftentimes the only one who's ordained formally is the guy who's going to be preaching. The rest are are treated as lesser uh, with a lesser status, and that seems to be a little bit of a problem here. And finally, plural led congregations also tend more naturally to less participation by the whole church. Hey, there's a whole group of them up there that are doing the work. We don't have to do anything. And so oftentimes, uh, ironically, when you have multiple elders, there seems to be less for regular congregants, you know, the, 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 the hoi polloi, the, the regular members. There's less for them uh, to do. And sometimes it does encourage uh, less participation. So my conclusion, after it's all said and done, is that the Bible doesn't actually give us a definitive answer to the question. I do say that the biblical record tilts in favor of plural eldership by the sheer number of texts, if nothing else. And common sense suggests that there's safety in numbers. The need for single eldership has been an unfortunate historical and practical reality. So I don't think I can... I can properly say, even though I say it's ideal to have multiple elders, I, I am I am unable to say that a church that has only one elder is somehow a church out of order. I think it's ideal to have more than one, 
at the same time, if you only have a church only has one, it is not for that reason out of order, biblically speaking. So hopefully that makes some sense. Any, any thoughts or questions as we wrap that up? I, I, I again, I don't give it. Maybe you wanted a definite answer. I, I can't give you one, but, uh, I think in general, Wes, I'm, I'm right where you are, but, uh, I don't know that it's as as absolute an argument as one could. Make. I have to admit that that pragmatically and practically speaking, plurality of elders is tough. It's, yeah, it is. I don't know how they I don't know how they did it in the New Testament local churches. I mean, it's just. I mean, not we're, we should all be New Testament local churches, but you know what I mean in the right. area. Right. Could it could it be that the oh. The New Testament church was so large that it really needed all the elders where our churches these days are basically much smaller churches. Actually, I mean, when you convert 5,000 people, yeah. you know. Maybe initially, but actually the church started small. I mean, and, and, and the fact is God disperses those people, right? With, with persecution. Right. And it, it is interesting that once you get to, you know, into the writing of the letters, there's one church at Corinth. There's one church at Ephesus. There's one church at Colossae. So the idea that the, the church grew that fast everywhere probably doesn't hold up. Yeah, you're right. Right up front, there were 5,000. And so multiple elders would have been necessary. I'm not sure that that persisted very long. Because in U.S. history, I think I heard this as a fact that the Methodist church spread so fast and so far that there, I don't know if it's today, there's a Methodist church in every county in the, you know, in the, in the U.S. type of thing. Yeah. And that's, and that's where a lot of this circuit writing preaching was pioneered among the Methodists. Uh, the Methodists were, yeah, they, they're famous for their circuit writing preachers because there were, cause, and, and they did so much in the frontier, right? with these tiny little communities with, you know, six families or whatever. And even if they all went to church, they couldn't pay a pastor, right? And tithed, you know, they, they still couldn't pay a pastor. There weren't enough of them. Um, and so we would have, they, they would have these circuit riding pastors that would go from church to church to church because for that, for that very reason, practically speaking, it was impossible for each church to have an elder that was paid and that was qualified. There just weren't. There weren't enough people. There wasn't enough money. So, I mean, but there wasn't a church on every corner either, was there? No. Yeah. Oftentimes, if if a, if a town had a church, there was one, <laughs> right? Yeah, because I always think of that when someone lives out in Wyoming. If you have a little church stat, you don't have any place else to go, probably. So you've got to you've got to have unity, and you've got to make amends and forgive. But here people just go somewhere, somewhere else. Right. Which yeah. is a big difference. Yeah. Big difference and a big problem. Right. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Well, thanks for coming tonight. Our time is exhausted here. And next time we'll uh, talk about deacons as their, and their, and their function within the life of the church. Um, and then we'll get into the, the ordinances of the church. Okay. Next time is two weeks from next, now. Yes, thank you, Wes. Next time is two weeks. We do not meet next week. It's a lot of people's spring break, so we're 
we decided that that would be a week to to have off. So go enjoy the hopefully warmer weather than you had today. So. <laughs> Happy Easter! Oh, thank you. You, you all Easter. have a have a good holiday.